All right, well, if you've been here before, you know where I'm going to start. I'll say good morning. I think I already did that, actually, but a good morning. If I didn't, grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of John in chapter 8. This morning, we're going to begin in verse 48, and we're going to work our way to the end of this particular chapter. This certain series, or mini-series, is in, within the whole of our overall series this morning. It's a two-part series where Jesus is focusing on a group of believers who have come to some sort of belief in him. We're not quite sure what that means, um, but I want to give us just some background on why I can say that. Our event is tied to the Festival of Booths. This began to take place in John chapter 7. It's ran through John chapter 8, and throughout this festival... Jesus has been revealing himself to the people, the Jewish people who have been gathered at the temple, but they have not been able to grasp the truths that he has been laying before them and delivering. A particular passage is bookended with John chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, and then John chapter 8, verse 59. In John chapter 8, verse 30, we are told that Many believed in him. That's the end of verse 30. And then when we come to verse 31, and we have to keep in mind that John did not write this with subtitles or verses to break it up. It's supposed to meant to flow through. So in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And then finally in our passage this morning, and what we'll be looking at today, And the conclusion of what Jesus delivers to the people who, again, I say have some sort of belief, which we'll try to unpack that a little bit this morning, we read at the beginning of verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. And our question, stemming from last week and flowing into this week, is what happened? What happened to those who had believed in Jesus who by the end of this encounter have now churned and wanted to stone him to death. The answer is going to come to full fruition as we work through our passage this morning. Jesus is going to lay before these believers these truths that they're not going to be able to swallow. And it's truths about the gospel, which refers to him. And he's going to lay them before them, and they're going to continue to get more and more agitated. And I'm not saying that Jesus came to this particular festival to ruffle feathers, but if you look at John chapter 7 going through John chapter 8 and into John chapter 9 next week, you're going to see Jesus did exactly that. He made a lot of people upset while he visited Jerusalem. These two chapters, as I mentioned, flow right into chapter 9. We'll unpack that next week. But for this morning, the question begins is, what have we, make it more personal, what have I, what have you put your faith in? Now, some of you grew up in church, I believe we would give the good old Sunday school answer, well, Jesus. And so we'd mark one for Sunday school, we'd give Sunday school a star. More elaborate answer would be the gospel of Jesus. And some of the passages that we've looked already in this series, beginning in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus in a synagogue in Nazareth, where he opens up a scroll that contains writings from the book of Isaiah, which was a custom when someone was going to read from the book and then give a, a teaching from the book. And this is what Jesus read from. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you look at that particular passage, after Jesus read from the book of Isaiah, he looked at all who were gathered in that synagogue and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. The word good news is the word that we receive the word gospel from. That is what gospel means. It means good news. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we are told that he, he, being Jesus, went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus' whole ministry was about, is proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And yet we find within Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, he was physically in the people's presence. They weren't getting it. And a lot of times they were getting upset with it. But Jesus kept pushing on. When we refer to the gospel, we're referring to the good news of the life, the ministry, the teachings, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the ultimate promise that Jesus is one day going to return for his people. This is what we have put our faith in when we say, I've put my faith in Jesus. It is all of those things. Not just the promise of eternal life, but who Jesus was, what Jesus did. And what he means for us. This morning our focus is on the gospel truth to which Jesus is trying to lay before this crowd, trying to get them to understand so they can put their faith in the right thing. So our title this morning is a continuation of last week. We're calling it Faith Check Part 2. He's going to deliver some major truths concerning the gospel of who he is, one of which is going to lead this crowd to turn on him. So let's read our passage and we'll walk through Beginning in verse 48 of John chapter 8. The word of the Lord says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. He's speaking of God in that context. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You have not known him. known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 year, yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Again, the context of this whole engagement began back in verse 31. Jesus is addressing a group of believers from the larger crowd that was gathered on the temple, and this probably most likely fell on the last night of this festival, and he's, he's addressing this group that has come to some sort of belief. I called it an unrighteous belief last week. It was a nominal belief, a name-by-only belief. It was a false, artificial belief. And Saying Jesus is demon-possessed, which is the way the crowd initially directs to him there in verse 48. The crowd is now beginning to reveal they're turning on Jesus, and they're turning on his word. They're saying through a form of a question that, look, Jesus, you are in the wrong here, and we are right. I like how the New Living Translation makes the statement. It says, you are a Samaritan devil. And this is the issue that is beginning to arise when the, with the crowd as Jesus initially addressed them in verse 31. He told them that if you abide in my word, meaning if you, if you stay in my word, if you continue in my word, if you find rest in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And this isn't the first time that people have come to Jesus and have accused him of being possessed by a demon. He healed a man at one time and they said he was in cohorts with Beelzebub. Already in this whole interaction, beginning in John chapter 7, numerous times have they said, well, he's possessed by a demon. Throughout the remainder of his ministry, which is probably six to eight months left, many people are going to say he is, he is possessed by a demon. To this accusation, Jesus takes it head on there in verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. And in this simple statement that Jesus makes in verse 49, he is rephrasing what he's already told them blatantly back in verse 44 of this encounter, that these individuals are of their father, the devil. I mean, you can't just, he's not beating around the bush with this group of people. He comes straight out in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and that is why you imitate your father. You have his very nature in you, but I glorify my father. He's also telling these groups of individuals there in verse 49 that if they're going to dishonor him whom the Father has sent and who only seeks to glorify the Father, then they are in fact dishonoring God, their Father, the one they claim as their God by their accusations and rebuttals. And the first thing we learn about our faith in the gospel is that the gospel seeks to glorify the Father. And I almost wanted to put only at the end of that, but I think that should be understood. The gospel seeks to glorify the Father only. This is truth that Jesus is laying before these individuals and us today. He's going to reiterate it there in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And when he says he is our God and he's speaking to them, he's taking us a statement that they made last week in verse 41 when they were protesting to Jesus saying, we have one Father, even God. Statement of verse 54 saying, if Jesus came only to glorify himself or to boast in himself, then everything that he has said and everything he has done would mean nothing. It would be completely worthless. Jesus understood as we should, the gospel, his life, his ministry, his 
his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promise to return. The gospel is only meant to bring glory to the Father. I think this is a battle we all face because I think we all like self-glory at times. Who here doesn't like a that a boy or that a girl? Who here doesn't like a pat on the back or a way to go? You know, I'm not going to lie. It makes me feel good as a pastor when things are over after worship service on Sunday morning and people come up to me and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. And I want to tell you, I appreciate the encouragement. And that's what I, I, I pray to take it as, is encouragement. I'm not going to lie, after a Bible study lesson, and when people said that was so good, that's exactly what I need to hear. I'm not going to lie, it, it makes me feel good, and I appreciate the encouragement. It makes me understand that, okay, I must have been on God's right page. I must have been doing what God wanted me to do, but I'm also not going to lie. Sometimes I want to think, <laughs> look what I did. Look what I accomplished. But it's not about me and the work I think I did. Now, I'll tell you, my week is a week some of y'all would hate because I know some of y'all aren't readers. Some of y'all are readers and maybe like, that'd be awesome. My week has spent a lot of time reading and prepping and studying and taking notes and writing down thoughts. Sometimes it's in my phone. Sometimes it's in a notebook. It's spent time going through commentaries and lexicons and taking what would be about 70 pages of notes and cramming it down into about six pages because I know you all don't want to be here till tomorrow morning. And all the while I do that, I'm praying, God, guide me. Lead me. Let your spirit speak to my heart so I know what needs to be said to your people. And I do it all for the sake that the Father would be glorified in this place. I do it all for the sake that the kingdom and the will of the Father will be done in each and every individual's life that is gathered here today or on Wednesday night. You see, our goal is to not only use the gospel for the glory of God, but to allow the gospel to continue to transform and sanctify us for the glory of God. These books that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not just stories. There are lessons to be learned so that we can truly abide and keep the word of God within our hearts. They're meant to change our heart so they can change our actions. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote to the Galatian believers. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he wrote, By the power of the Spirit, for our, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. To the Corinthian believers, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He writes to the Philippian believers in chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, everything, he says, as lost because of the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And how do we know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord? We abide in his word. We keep his word. Paul goes on, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Reminds me of an old hymn, and I make that joke, those were books. 
Uh, churches still have some. Hold hymn, an old hymn I used to grow up with when I grew up in church. And I said these words, and some of you probably, it's going to tickle your ear, I guess. Not in a good way, then, not in an unbiblical way. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So love to the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life our redemption to win. And opened the life gate that all may go in. And here comes the chorus with exclamation points. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Then the invitation will come to the Father through Jesus, his Son, and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. The gospel brings glory to the Father alone because it is through the gospel we have been saved, not by our own merit, but by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom God sent to save us. And this is why the gospel is good news. This is why it's good news about Jesus. And though this crowd is, I would believe, a nominal group of believers, they begin churning on Jesus. And notice the compassion of Jesus in this interaction. Notice the grace and the mercy. He's trying to get them to where they need to be. In verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, That's an opening statement Jesus is going to use frequently throughout his teachings. What it means is when you read that in the Gospels and you see truly, truly, or truly, truly, I say to you, or sometimes it says solemnly, I say to you, or I tell you the truth, whatever version you're reading, it is Jesus speaking to a group of people saying, if you're going to hear anything, hear this. Focus in on what is about to come out of my mouth. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That word keeps in the Greek carries the meaning of obedience and guarding. Jesus is again reiterating how he began this conversation back in verses 30 and 31. The implication is when we are keeping the words of Christ, when we are being obedient to the words of Christ, when we are guarding the words of Christ in our heart, we are continually accepting the invitation to trust Jesus at his word We trust what he said is absolute truth, no matter how hard it is to hear. We do this because know that Jesus' words are God's words. The understanding of this is going to take work on behalf of believers, not a work to earn our salvation or to keep our salvation, but it is going to take work for us to abide in the words of Christ. It is going to take effort For us to keep the words of Christ. That's why Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Martin Luther, who once preached on this passage, said this, For God did not wish to impart Christ to the world in any other way. He had to embody him in the word and thus distribute him and present him to everybody. Otherwise, Christ would have existed for himself alone and remained unknown to us. He would have thus died for himself. But since the word places before us Christ... It thus places us before him who has triumphed over death, sin, and Satan. So what Jesus says here, he's going to blow the top off the whole thing. 
These individuals, they're stuck in the physical, and Jesus is still trying to show them grace and compassion to get them to the spiritual. And they become emphatic that Jesus is a demon. And it's based upon the evidence of the fact that their father Abraham and the prophets after him, they have all died. And these men, Abraham and all the prophets, were highly regarded within the Jewish community. And that's who Jesus' audience is in this particular moment. And they were so emphatic about their claim, they stated twice in verses 52 and verses 53, and then they wrap it up with a similar question that was already posed at the end of verse 53. It says, who do you make yourself out to be? And that question would be better read in English is, who do you think you are? And what we see, this group of believers, whatever they believed in, They have now fallen back to where the crowd was that put no belief in Jesus Christ because they asked a similar question in verse 25, who are you? And though those two questions may be worded differently, the emphasis in the Greek is the same thing. Who do you think you are? They're disgusted with him. They're aggravated with the Savior of the world. But what Jesus continues to do is reveal that our faith in the gospel is that the gospel guides to eternity. This is why a couple weeks ago I challenged everyone who was here, and if you weren't here, I'll challenge you now, to begin memorizing these five passages of Scripture that you can share the gospel with. And yes, I understand, three of them aren't in the gospel, and two of them are. So here they are again if you need to write them down. The first two point to the need of someone understanding and accepting the gospel. Here's the first two, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. They point to why someone needs to accept the gospel, accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then God points it out clearly what the gospel is in John 3.16. And if anybody has a rebuttal about that, well, I thought all religions go to heaven, then God gives us his word in John 14.6, say, nah, one way. When you get to those verses, because you're delivering truth as Jesus delivers truth, which is the word of God, then you come to that point like if someone's ready to accept the gospel, they memorize Romans 10.9, which says how someone can accept the gospel as their own, accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and be saved and be given eternal life. Five verses. Like five verses of scripture. I imagine for some of y'all who are about my age, if I played a song from your middle school or high school years, you could still sing that song word for word. Dun, 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 dun. Some of y'all are already going with the song, aren't you? We memorize stuff all the time. The reason I challenge you to memorize these verses is because we, you know, we, we can get into debates. We can enter into conversations. We can start stirring up arguments. We can dive into what is known as apologetics, which means to defend the faith. But if we're not presenting the truth of God's word, then it is all meaningless. That's what Jesus understood. If it's not bringing glory to the Father, it's all meaningless. And the word of God can only bring glory to the Father when it is used correctly and contextually. It's not about what we think we know. Instead, it's about what God has already said in his eternal word. And what we need to understand as believers is it only is God who can change the hearts of individuals. 
We can look at them and discuss for the actions they do or the words they say or the things or hobbies and habits they have, but only God can change their hearts. And only God's word through the power of the Spirit can change their heart. And this is what God has done. He has given us his word as his tool. Some genius decided they could put it on a little app and you put it on your phone. And then, just in case that's not enough, when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I love this. God says, oh, that's awesome. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to infuse you with my power of the Spirit so you can carry out the mission that I've commanded you to carry out. As if God was appealing through you, through Christ. So when we share the gospel, when we share our faith, and just hear me again, we are all commanded to do it. It's not a commission, it's not a calling. We are all commanded to do it. It is utmost importance that we use the word of God as our source. Now, I love a good testimony. I love hearing how God has changed the lives and the hearts of people. But if a testimony is not rooted deep in the word of God, there might be some danger there. If it's not the word of God that changed you, there might be some danger there. If it was in a feeling or an emotional state at one point in time, but it wasn't the word of God, there might be some danger there. And I say that because just look into the Gospels. There are a lot of people who are excited about Jesus. But when it came down to it, they're ready to crucify him. And Jesus doesn't let up. Look at me in verse 56 and 58. Verse 56, this is Jesus still speaking. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it was glad. Jumping down to verse 58. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, again, listen up. This is going to be important. Before Abraham was, I am. Let's deal with verse 56 first. There's a lot of speculation about when did this moment happen? When did Abraham see the day of Christ? When did he actually saw it? And when was he glad about it? What Jesus is talking about is his earthly form, which is known as the incarnation. If you go to the beginning of the Gospel of John in John chapter 1, his introduction is all about the incarnation of Christ from eternity. He comes to verse 14 and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning he was incarnated before people. So Jesus is basically saying that he is the only one time traveler. Right here. Time travel exists? Yeah, for Jesus it did. Came from eternity, he lived on this earth, he still lives in eternity. And Jesus is saying, not only did Abraham see Jesus' day coming, but Jesus saw Abraham. And that's why there's a rebuttal there in verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. We do the math with the Gospels, the amount of Passover feasts that Jesus would have gone to, which he would have gone to every single one as growing up as a child. But we have the recording of his ministry here in the Gospels. And when his ministry started, Jesus went to three Passovers. So that'd be the course of each year. And so we can gather from the Gospels that Jesus' earthly ministry was roughly over three years. And so the question is, why did they make that sort of statement there in verse 57? 
Well, we have to understand what 50 meant to Jewish people. 50 years marked the year of Jubilee. And Jesus is, when they're saying that Jesus wasn't even 50, what they're saying is that you have not even made it to your year of Jubilee. So how in the world can you say that you saw Abraham when he's been dead for thousands of years? So back to Jesus' statement in verse 56. About Abraham rejoicing the day when he would see Jesus come and that in fact he did see it and he was glad. So there's many thoughts about this statement. But if you read through the book of Genesis, and that's where Abraham's found, at least the, the stories about him, you're going to see that there's no direct statement in the book of Genesis that says Abraham saw Jesus. So how can Jesus make this statement? I want to pull from a gentleman by the name of Frederick Bruner in his commentary on the Gospel of John. I want to give credit where credit is due. And so what Bruner does is he maps out eight sources in the book of Genesis when G Abraham would have had this invitation to see Jesus. Six of them, I believe, hold credit, but I'm going to give you all eight, and I'll tell you which ones I don't think hold as much credit. The first one is found in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, that's when God called Abram at that particular moment in time to leave his country, his family, and his father, and to follow him under this promise that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that statement right there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, is right there saying that it's not just going to be Abram who is going to become Abraham's descendants, which would be the Jewish people, but that all people are going to be blessed through you, Abram. Guess where that blessing comes from? Only through Jesus. Yeah, Sunday school answer. Thank you, Bridget. Second, you think I'm not paying attention, do you? Second is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. Now, notice at this point, Abram still is concerned that his wife Sarai and he have had no children. And unfortunately, they're getting up in age. And so to this concern, God addresses Abram and tells him to look at the stars and to see if he can count them all. And then God tells Abram, as uncountable as the stars are, so shall your offspring be. And with this statement, we're told a very significant thing in the Old Testament that directly links to the New Testament. It says in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And why is that significant? Because at the time of Abram there in Genesis 15, there is no sacrificial system. There is no temple. There is no tabernacle for him to go to worship at. There is nothing for him to make himself right with God. And God said in that moment, Abram, because you believed my word, I declare you righteous. And isn't that what Jesus is telling these people here in John chapter 8? If you abide in my word, if you keep my word, that's what will declare you righteous. Next one is Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abraham now concerning the promised land. Now, I'm just going to tell you this right off the bat. I don't believe this one holds as much weight in my opinion. It's merely attached to the land to which the Christ would be born. He would do his ministry. He would die, and he would resurrect and eventually ascend. The fourth is in Genesis 17. God promises Abraham and Sarah that they will have a child in their old age. 
And that child would come there to name him Isaac, and God would establish his covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And with this particular covenant, God promised Abraham that he would be fruitful and be made into nations. And kings shall come from you. He doesn't tell Abraham, I'm going to make you fruitful, and you're going to become a nation, being the nation of Israel, but you are going to become nations. And guess when that came to fruition? In the book of Acts, when the apostles started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Genesis chapter 18. I don't think that one carries much merit to you, so I'm not even going to deal with it. Genesis chapter 22. You can scratch that out of your notes. You wrote that down. Genesis 22. We have this story. God calls Abraham. He now has a son named Isaac. And he tells Abraham he wants him to sacrifice his son. And this is how God addresses Abraham in this moment. Verse 2 of chapter 22. Take your son, your only son. Now, what language does that sound like? For God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only son. And the purpose of God giving the world his only son is that his son would become the perfect atoning sacrifice. Well, Abraham's ascending up the mountain with his little boy Isaac, and Isaac looks him in the eye, and I can't imagine that feeling as a father if you have kids when your son looks you in the eye and you know what God has told you to do, and I can't believe Abraham even went along with it. Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son and says, The Lord... God himself will provide, which God did. And in that moment, God revealed himself as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Again, a foreshadowing of God giving his only son and providing the only means to which we can be restored back to him. Next one is found in the same encounter, Genesis chapter 22. God speaks to Abraham concerning his faith and obedience and tells Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven. Remember, he already told him those are uncountable. And the sounds and and the sand that is on the seashore, those are also uncountable or innumerable. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, the only way all the nations of the earth can be blessed is found only through Jesus Christ. The final one is in Genesis chapter 24. The Lord appears once more to Abraham. And it says this, now Abraham was old. How would you like that to be written about you? Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Here's the thing, that phrase, well advanced in years, in the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is originally written in, literally means Abraham was old and entered into the days. In the Jewish tradition, which they would have been writing Hebrew and reading Hebrew and teaching from Hebrew, it came to mean that Abraham was allowed a vision of all days or periods of time to come, including the great events in all history of his descendants, including the age to come. In that particular case, Abraham saw a vision of Jesus in some portion of his life and was glad. And that glad, word glad literally means he rejoiced. The point is that our faith in the gospel is the gospel is eternal. 
And truly, or Jesus makes this completely clear, abundantly clear in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we can rewrite over, write, we can rewrite over that. But now Jesus has done it. We might call it a, a mic drop in this moment, but now Jesus has dropped his bombshell. They've been asking him, who do you think you are? Who are you? They had the preconceived notions of who they thought he was, and now Jesus just come right out. Look, I, you're not getting it. You're still stuck here in the physical, so I'm just going to come right out with it. I'm going to tell you exactly who I am, and who I am is I am. There's Abraham. I am. I was before him. He is stating directly to this crowd who have put some sort of belief in him of his, his eternal divinity and his equality with God to the point that his audience cannot misunderstand what he has been trying to get them to understand all along. Who are you? I am. That particular title is very sacred to the Jewish people. Some of us may remember the story in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses comes to the burning bush. And God introduces himself to Moses, who's been on the run for 40 years, who's grown up in Egyptian teaching, but who was a Hebrew at birth. And the Lord says to Moses, I am who I am. That is the covenantal name of God. It means I have always been, I will always be, and I always will be. I am. I am eternal. Now, when you go to Exodus, it is not the same word. The New Testament is written in the Greek. Matter of fact, it's not the same compromise or same synonymous word to that Hebrew word to which our title that the Lord delivers to Moses. But here's the thing: when we turn to the book of Isaiah, which is a book of prophecies, numerous prophecies about the coming of Christ, that title, I am is synonymous to the word that Jesus entitled he gives himself here in John chapter 8. In Isaiah, the I am speaks of the coming of the Lord's salvation, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the suffering servant, the coming of the Lord's day. So Jesus is saying, look, if you know the scriptures, what Isaiah saw and what he prophesied, I am. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. I am the suffering servant. I am the coming of the Lord's day of salvation. Commentator writes, by using the I am, Jesus is claiming to have existed not just at the time of Abraham, but for eternity. He's saying that his words and deeds are not about God. They are, in fact, God's own words and deeds. So we come to this point of impasse here in verse 59. Practically begging and poking Jesus at the stick to tell us, who are you? So Jesus delivers it in such a way they cannot miss the point. And this crowd who has come to some form of belief, I believe it was a false belief, mostly because they have this belief about who they thought the Messiah should be and who they thought the Messiah, who they thought the Messiah, who they hoped him to be, and being this king who would overthrow the Roman Empire. They finally understood who Jesus was saying he was, and the response was not a response of praise, it was not a response of acceptance, but they were prepared to stone him to death. 
the act of stoning Jewish community was, imper- was permissible by God. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, 10 through 16, it says that if anybody spoke blasphemy against the Lord, they would be stoned to death. And though it would be seen as a corporate punishment, not viewed very highly by the Roman Empire, who was in charge at this moment in time, at times the Roman Empire would permit it. This means by their actions. Verse 59, the very beginning, they, they picked up stones to throw at him. We have to understand what this means. The crowd had heard Jesus. They listened to him. And they understood it. They understood what he is saying. But they did not believe in his words. And therefore, they could not abide in his words, and they could not keep his words. And this is the final thing about our faith in the gospel. The gospel will offend some. We find this throughout all the gospels in Jesus' ministry. You look in the book of Acts, you see this also playing out. We have to understand that we preach the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We live the gospel. We present the gospel. That's the good news And though we proclaim it and though we live it, there are going to be some people who don't want to hear it. And as believers, we're going to be like, why would someone not want to hear good news? Why would someone not want to accept good news? I mean, we hear bad news all the time, every single day on the news. And now we get good news. Why does it offend people? And I want to answer that question by going back to those five verses that I challenge you to memorize. And someone here today may need to accept the gospel, but it begins in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means all people were born wrong. When I mean wrong, I mean you were not right before holy God. I was not right before holy God. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anyone in this room who likes to frequently admit you're wrong? Women, do not raise your hand because I know that for a fact that's not the truth. Just joking. We'll edit that part out of the recording. Anyway. (laughs) All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is where coming to accept the gospel by faith has to begin. We have to come before a holy God and say, you know what? I did it wrong. I mess up. I do not live up to your holiness. And then the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. So all have sinned, and now the wage or the cost, the result of that sin is death. And that word death doesn't mean we're all going to die because we're all going to die unless Jesus Christ returns. That, what that word death means is eternal separation from the God of the living. So the wages of sin is death. Best but in the Bible. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift That's an important word right there. Because a gift is something that's given. 
freely. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, okay, okay. Define that gift. For God so loved the world he gave. He gifted. His only son. Whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That should not perish is connected back to Romans 6.23. The wage of sin is death. Well, should not perish means I'm not going to get that wage. That wage is going to be taken from me because of the gift, because of the only son and what the only son did, not because of what I did. And we may say, well, you know, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I give to the church. I give to, uh, I give to ministries that are out there. I help people. You know, I'm nice. I, I hand out charitable donations. And Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't matter how much good stuff you've done in your life. And this is a hard truth, but it is a truth. Good people go to hell all the time. If you're not found in Jesus, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. You're heading for hell. And if you're here this morning like, well, I don't want that. And God makes it really clear. If you believe in your heart that God raised him, being Jesus, from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. It's Romans 10, 9. And if you're here this morning, you need to understand that eternity is coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. And he's coming back one day. And if you're not found in Christ, you will be eternally separated from God and Christ forever in a place the Bible defined as hell. But that is not God's will for your life. His will is for that everyone would be saved. So we admit to God that I'm a sinner. I fall short. I make mistakes. There's things I'm not proud of. But I believe your son lived a perfect life in my place. He died for my sin and he rose again that I might be forgiven and be given eternal life. And then the Bible says you have to confess it. But you have to make it publicly known. If you're here this morning, that's something you need to do. I'm going to ask Bridget and Nick to come and lead us in a song. The whole, the whole shebang is coming to lead us in a song. If you need to come down and begin a relationship with God, find only through Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to come down. And you can sit in the front row. I'll come sit by you. Or you can come straight to me and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. And this could be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news you've given us and the good news that many of us here have accepted. But Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as your Lord and Savior, I pray right now your spirit begin working on their hearts and this would be the day of their salvation. But Lord, as your people, let us be a people who have placed our faith in your word alone, knowing that it is absolute truth and it will never change. And it prepares us for the day where we will see you face to face and we will join with the angels and the heavenly beings and we will worship you. Thank you for that promise. Pray you continue to be glorified in this time. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.